Motasa Papavato Arhato Sama Sambutasa Namo Tasa Papavato Arhato Sama Sambutasa Namo Tasa Papavato Arhato Sama Sambutasa Bhutan Dhammang Sankang Sam For those of you who aren't familiar with our rituals, Colleen just asked me to give a Dhamma talk in her fluent Pali. <laughs> Um, I, I, I practice in a very conservative tradition, and uh, conservation, conservative, it's an interesting word. Conservative religion maybe sounds a bit old-fashioned, and yet we're into conservation. But for me, the way I've lived, the way I've lived this, my adult life is one where I've been fortunate to live in a, in a in a religious form, which has uh, been tremendously helpful for understanding myself and creating situations where uh, people can practice. So I see the value of it, and so I try to conserve it. And part of that conservation is, is, is rituals, and uh, uh, like we're having a, an ordination October 11th, one of our uh, novices, our only novice, we came and was going to ordain as a, as a fully ordained monk. And uh, monks aren't priests, so that even the word ordination is not correct. It, much of the, the religious language that we use in, in the West is, is from a Christian background, um, because that's what the religious language is about. But the, the, the idea of a, of a monk is that he is a practitioner who ordains or goes forth, is a better way to put it, um, not as a priest who has some kind of priestly rites or powers or an inside track into God or something like that, but rather it's a, it's a way of life that's undertaken with the aspiration to realize that the Buddha's uh, ideas around Nibbana, enlightenment. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's more like a craft, more like something you do. And then uh, we are asked to share our, our, um, our insights and our knowledge, and so these kind of situations arise. But I certainly don't consider myself an expert or, um, like sometimes people think that we dispense religious uh, or uh, moral uh, moral precepts, you know, we tell you how to behave. I've never believed in that. You've got to figure out how to behave yourself. <laughs> I, I would find that repugnant, really. And I always like to tell the story where someone, you've probably heard it a million times, but I've only got a few stories. <laughs> and, uh, someone, someone wrote to me and said that she, she was contemplating the first precept in Buddhism, which is to non-violence, not, to not kill. And she had aphids on her flowers, on her roses. So she writes me this kind of strident letter. I've got aphids on my roses. And the first precept says, I shouldn't kill them. I like my roses. What, you know, like I'm supposed to do it. But, you know. <laughs> so I wrote back to her, said, it's your problem. <laughs> That's true, isn't it? So sometimes, you know, people in, in religious outfits and so on can get um, 
identified with, with traditions which actually they're not, not a part of. So the idea of a, of a Buddhist monk is that he's a mendicant, he's dependent on the laity um, for support, and, and there's a kind of interdependence but also aloofness about our life. And uh, so those of you who have come to the monastery, you understand it's a friendly place, but we do our thing, you do your thing. And so Buddhism is, a, for me, it's a very mature, uh, a mature consideration. You know, it's very much uh, depends on an attitude of inner truthfulness and, and, and a, a deep aspiration to, I would say, some sense of other, otherness. How do you describe that? So it's not, it's not simply uh, a psychological readjustment, and it's not simply uh, moral precepts, or not simply a, a, a kind of lifestyle per se, but it has a, it has a deep aspiration in it. Um, so that's what I'm about. <coughs> this is, this, I do monk this lifetime. And, and I've been very fortunate, very fortunate. You know, my, my interest is the transcendent, but sometimes I, I do forget that the reason I can do this is the generosity of the lay people. I, I, I don't forget that, but sometimes I forget just the, the basic stuff I had to go through to get the mind calm, to get the mind stable, to get some sense of um, well-being going in, in, in me because when I came into the monastery I had never really meditated I hadn't done retreats I just got inspired to do this so there's oftentimes a lot of groundwork uh, that needs to be done and, and these are these are the teachings around the social conventions of, of, a, of a spiritual lifestyle and, and Buddhism if you, if you take the example let's say um, the heat I mean, I felt hot, and I noticed the fans weren't on. So I said, let's switch on the fans. You know, the windows are open. Okay, good enough. Colleen said, should we switch this fan on? I, I said, I know that's an old, it sounds like a B, B27. So. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's not on. So I made a choice. Right? So that's a, that's a social engagement. Right? I'm someone who's feeling hot. You're feeling hot. How can I make it comfortable? Best we can do. And that's social responsibility. Quite simple. So that's one way of looking at Buddhism. The sense of me in the world of others, in the world of things, and how, how am I going to negotiate living this life in a way which is skillful and helpful to you and to me, to both of us. And how can that be a foundation for deeper understanding of spiritual life? But another way I can look at this moment is that that there is there is heat, and that heat is in awareness, and that there is sound, and that the sound is in awareness, and there's people downstairs talking, and that's in awareness, and then my reactions to maybe uh, like if the dog were barking, let's say for the whole 45 minutes, the reaction of me to the dog would also be an awareness, wouldn't it? So conventionally you might say, okay, I am reacting to the dog. Yeah, it's not wrong to say that. But also another way to look at it is that the react is the sound and the reaction to the sound are both in awareness. And that awareness does not get colored by all of that. And that's very important. 
because the uh, come in. <laughs> you're trying to concentrate. You get these things coming in. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so you have this this way. The way the teaching runs is this conventional truth. I often like to bring this up. There's conventional truth, and there's a transcendent truth. There's the conventions that we live by, and then this other way, this other way of looking that this is happening in awareness. And that's very important, because that's the pathway to otherness, the other side. We don't use, we don't use a theistic paradigm in Buddhism. We use more, uh, uh, we use a kind of via, via negativa. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's not that. That's the kind of way we look at it. But just I take that example, that if the only way I can look at this moment with the heat is me and the heat, right? Either I just endure it, or I just have to sit through this heat, and then, gosh, I, mean, I shouldn't have come anyway, or contribute to air conditioning, that'd be nice. Uh, <laughs> or, or, I could see, oh, heat is something that exists in awareness. And that's very freeing. That's very freeing, isn't it? Very liberating. It's not that I don't, you know, liberation is that the, the, it's not that my sense organs don't function, or that I always feel comfortable and happy and contented and, and uh, fulfilled by my uh, sense apparatus. No, that's impossible. Sense apparatus is dualistic. Comfort and discomfort are necessary. Otherwise, I wouldn't act. So, but there is there is a possibility of deep peace within discomfort within comfort and that's through knowing in this sense of non-grasping so when I feel the heat grasping or attachment would be the mind starting to complain about that now that could be quite good I could say well this is too hot you know we're gonna we're gonna get a heat stroke let's get out of there there's nothing wrong with that but was the if that's the only avenue I have for well-being then my only seems to me the only thing I can do is constantly manipulate conditions to try to get it right and balanced and comfortable and happy and good and <laughs> so on and so forth. But that's very limited, isn't it? It's very, very limited. We've all seen that. Now, knowing is not limited. Awareness is not limited. It's not limited by heat. It's not limited by pain. It's not limited by harmony or disharmony. It doesn't get colored by those things. Is it? So that's why I like to do that. Now this, is, this isn't like a intellectual clever trick. It's not like a, a some kind of philosophy. It's something you have to experience. And, and Buddhism is very much existential that way. You know, your existence can prove this. So when I when I when I either way, you know the, those of you who know me the way I like to teach is say listen to sound feel the body I, I toggle between those two and what I'm, I keep trying to indicate is that what is that awareness what is that knowing that's the mystery isn't it my emotions aren't very mysterious you know boring sometimes and, and sometimes you know downright embarrassing. <laughs> And is that a problem? Not really. This is the way it is. <laughs> my body, my body is kind of it ain't getting much better. It's actually in better shape than last year. So. But I'm gonna, it's gonna die. It's gonna crumble up. But does awareness crumble up? 
And does aware that is, is awareness they ever get kind of contracted? It doesn't, doesn't. And these are just questions I put to you to explore. Now you can't reach this by thinking. You know, thought really isn't all that wise. No thought, silence. This is where wisdom lies. I think where lies. Now, look how difficult no thought is. So your mind's just like given five seconds and it's off, off to the races. So. What I, what, what I try to encourage people is to, to, to notice this point. I guess as you're meditating, and, and this is, I always give the same example, where you're, you're, you're meditating on your own or in a room, and your, your thought patterns begin to preoccupy all your mental space. You're worried about something, or you're, you know, you've got a project that you got on, or, or you're some memory comes up. And all your all your space now, all your conscious space now is preoccupied with thinking. And then what is that thinking? That thinking is very very much a sense of me and my dramas and my stories and my regrets and my remorse and my memories and so on. Uh, and my relatives and what am I gonna do and, and such like. So all the all the all the space of consciousness gets filled by that. And as you're meditating, let's say someone coughs or, or you feel a pain in the leg, suddenly, suddenly, you know where you are. You know you're in the room, and you know you've been planning, right? as an example. You know where you are. You're present, right? And that's the moment of awakening. And that's so important. That's so important. Because in that moment, if you really pay attention there, the sense of a self and a person and a narrative and a storyline and history, that all ceases into silence. It's not there. We don't tend to notice that because we then, as meditators, we very quickly try to figure out how we can get rid of thought. And we become a different kind of self who then analyzes the problem and then just keeps thinking. This keeps going on. So I strongly suggest notice, notice that moment of awakening. Notice how silent that notice the gap or the space, notice that, and begin to treasure that. Make that important. Make that something that is is yeah, this is it. Make it something like uh, that that you 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 recollect and you keep recollecting that and make and and what's the word? It's like that's home. That's your real home. That gap. That's your real home. That's your peace and all that good stuff that you hear about is there. It's 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 always available. It could only always be available, because anything that was bound by time in the future is going to die. Time, time is about death, isn't it? Born and dying. But this, this, this ineffable knowing and presence—it's always there—is uh, is where the transcendent lies. Because the transcendent, or or liberation, or freedom, or whatever language you like, peace, is is always available. And why is it unavailable? It's because we're preoccupied, our attention is focused on the wrong things. So much of Buddhism talks about the problem of preoccupation and, and, and why that's uh, limited. We have to be preoccupied to a certain extent. Um, so I had to preoccupy myself with coming here. I had to plan the day and figure out stuff. So that's natural. That's natural, functional. 
But to not value this knowing, to only value the objects, the experiences, the memories, to only value that, I think we'd really, we're really missing out. And our culture does miss out, doesn't it? It's a very secular culture. It's a very outwards-oriented culture. All world cultures now. Whether it's um, iPhones or YouTube or books or, or food or music, all of that, all of those are okay. You know, they're they're you can have really lovely experiences through having a meal together, or you can get really. I I look up YouTube now for joinery and, and making some stuff, so it's very helpful. But the mind, which is always out, is is to me a problem of our culture, and maybe all cultures a problem. A mind which is always out into objects never has never has the space or. To recollect that which is beyond objects, which is very profound and beautiful. So our 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 cultural problem, I think, is that we have so many neat and interesting things we can absorb. They're not immoral. That's the thing. You know, you can do like YouTube. It's amazing. <laughs> I learn anything. I just we just put a new bell striker on our bell finally, and I say, how am I going to do that? I've got a memory in, in Zen monasteries, so I looked up Buddhist bells. <laughs> right? Yeah, of course. And then I looked, I looked at it and looked at it and figured it out and did it. So fine. But then the question is then do I look up something else? <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, it's not immoral, it's just distracting, shall we say. Um, but what it, it denies, if, if, if that's the only thing we're doing, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not some kind of a curmudgeonly monk, you know, you can't do anything, but to be interested in, in this otherness, in the knowing, means you have to stop, we have to, at times, give up our fascination with objects. That's all. And yet objects are very, very uh, compulsive, attractive, repulsive, fascinating. And thought. You know, thought is just like such an addiction, isn't it? We're just so addicted to thought. I was answering a question with someone in the monastery today. It was so complicated. You know, something of purity. And, and I said, my gosh, why don't you just have a sandwich? created this really, really deep, deep question. I didn't see that. He said it was just a creation of a deep question making it just, just stuff, thought. Well, there's no thought. To me, that's, you know, that's really interesting. No thought. So when, when you just listen to sound, right, you just allow, allow the sound to come to you, you, get, you can get very restless. I don't get it. Yeah, what's the punchline? <laughs> well, I should be looking for it. And the mind is always seeking an object. And this is what we call tanha, or craving. This kind of movement of, of, of attention into the objective world, into our emotions, into things like that. And so there's always this leaning forward, away from the present moment. Leaning into the, into the future, coming back from the past. And to actually come back to the present, like this, like, 
deep, deep stillness is the work of the contemplative, the work of the meditator, the training that we, that we try to do in whatever way we try to do that. And that's not a becoming. It's not a fascination of objects. Um, but it's actually using objects to come to that which knows objects. So that, that's why I like to say we're, we're practicing awareness with the breath. I'm not trying to dominate my mind on the breath and just control it, me, my breath, that kind of thing. No, no, it's just that what's going on now? Anything's fine, you know. Heat, okay, that's what I always do when I teach. I say, so, okay, what's happening in the room? All right, let's do heat. It's not a technique, right? The present moment isn't technique. <laughs> and then how do you, you know, and it's very simple. It's not complicated. Our thoughts are complicated our analysis and so on, but that, you know, just listening is, is the most simple thing. Now, why, why not sustain that for a long time? Because it's boring. It's not productive. Uh, I'm not getting anywhere, whatever. But the suggestion is, why don't you just try, just try sustaining pure awareness for a span of time, on any sense of it. Just try that. With no, and, and you, well, you're choosing something neutral, not something exciting, or it's not frightening. He's choosing, and then they train. You just train and listening, and then your mind becomes to have space, right? Because it's now abiding as space rather than absorbed into the object. And as you do that, you begin to be able to so that there's the knowing, and then other things come into consciousness: memories, ideas, thoughts, pain. Yeah, that comes in. But you, now you see it. Well, those are movements in awareness. And then you see the very interesting, like the whole sense of a person coming up. What does that dog stop barking? I'm going to tell the neighbor. That's just a thought. And it goes, and you see, wait, there's no person there. It's empty. It's not vacuum. It's not like empty of, of consciousness. No, that that whole sense of me being a person with a problem, the dog out there, is actually just another phenomenon that comes and goes in awareness. And you begin to see, oh, even the idiotic thoughts I have, even the embarrassing memories I have, even the horrible things which I, I perpetrated on the world or whatever, are simply memories in awareness. Sense of guilt is in awareness. Bad mood is in awareness. And you begin to see it's not about rearranging your moods to have like the right kind of mood it's just don't make it a problem it's just a mood and you can have there's a lot of freedom in that because I know I spent I've spent much of my monastic life trying to be the perfect mood I don't know about you I'm going to be the perfect mood today I always fail but when I just say well that's just a mood and I don't buy into the person who's worried about the mood or the person who blames the mood, or whatever, and I just say it's just a mood, it's just a movement, it's just an object, and there's the knowing. Then I begin to see even a bad mood points to the knowing, a good mood points to the knowing. Right? And you begin to see, well, yeah, that's where the freedom lies. It doesn't lie in the mood. Mm. I don't I don't need to I don't need to be a perfect person or a perfect personality or have clever opinions. I used to suffer a lot when people asked me like really difficult poly questions. Because I've never really studied poly and 
40 years he doesn't know Pali on the job. <laughs> so I get this kind of fear, you know, that there'd be someone who'd act, you know, I could go, gosh, here comes the Pali scholar. <laughs> and it was just fear, but I bought into it. And then I'd bluff my way out of it, you know, give a Zen answer or something. <laughs> but it was just fear, wasn't it? But fear a... So then I'd become the person who has to be an expert in Buddhism. You know, so if someone asked me a difficult question, I'd have to figure out how... And I began to say, well, wait a minute. I don't know. <laughs> that's true. But the knowing knows that I don't know. And that's lovely, isn't it? That, that you can know that you don't know. Oh, sadhu. It's such a relief, isn't it? I don't know, even, I'm, I'm sure you're all experts in something. Most, a lot of gray hair here, I think. <laughs> so I'm sure, you know, you've got your, your fields of, of expertise. But isn't it lovely just to, to say, beats me, and not be bothered? And when you have an answer, you have an answer. Because the knowing isn't, isn't a conclusion. Intellect likes conclusions, doesn't it? It likes to have an answer. There's comfort, like if you're, if you're really uh, intellectually uh, proficient, then you know, good answers are, are, are very much part of your, the way you earn your keep, I suppose. But, but to, 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 to not be sure is the same as to be confident in the knowing. They both arise and cease. And this is, this is in, in Buddhist contemplation how you go beyond thought. You know, one of the ways you go beyond thought is you, one of the problems you have as a contemplative, as a meditator, is doubt. <coughs> doubt is always a sense of not being sure. And because that's uncomfortable, it's just like having a stone in your shoe, you try to find something which gets rid of the doubt. So you think, ask questions. Which is perfect for like cooling the place down, it's perfect for figuring out how to bake bread, or um, it's perfect for figuring out how to fix a flat tire. And yeah, that's where doubt is useful. But in a spiritual life, one of our problems is attachment to thought and knowledge in a way that keeps us thinking. I found, I found like in practice, I'd, you know, I'd get some confidence going in my own, my own insights and what my teachers gave me. I'm very much actually from an oral tradition. I, the books have been okay, but they've been helpful to fill out. But my, I've been very fortunate. I'm a listener more than that. I mean, I read a lot too. But, but anyway, the, the, the kind of um, understanding I, I, I would get from a book, I'd read something complex, something really complex. And I, I had this, uh, this kind of weird idea that if I read more, I'd know more. <laughs> and so I'd pick up really, really, okay, this is really difficult. I'm going to get into this. And I just get my head in a noodle trying to figure out <laughs> what are they talking about? And then I feel inadequate. Right? I feel inadequate because I couldn't figure out what they're talking about. I go, I don't know. <laughs> you know, and, and it was all predicated on some kind of intellectual structure that I had to get in my head. And so I just thought. Should have given me a sandwich. <laughs> but when I saw that, I said, no, you're just creating a problem here. You're just creating more thought through more doubt. But this way is, you know, the moment's this way. The sound. And it's not complicated. And I'm going to see for myself, I don't know about you, a lot of my suffering was just around 
too much thinking, too much analyzing, figuring stuff out. And so the, the body contemplations for me have been tremendously helpful. So I learn a lot more from my heart chakra than I do from my thinking mind. I understand myself a lot better from my, from my solar plexus than I do from my thinking mind. The basic, the basic formulation of, of Theravada Buddhism is that attachment to the mind-body experience prevents us from realizing this deep peace which lies in non-grasping or in the knowing of change. And that's the kind of parent, that's the kind of second reality that we're trying to encourage. The first reality we're trying to encourage is living a good life, being responsible, uh, taking care of our loved ones, uh, taking care of your piece of land or your piece of property or whatever it is, taking care of this body, and, and those are the conventional truths. But they're always limited. So the, the conventional life, we say, is the foundation for liberation. So generosity, morality, uh, social responsibility, these are a foundation, not an end in themselves. Not an end in themselves. Good friendships. And then they create the foundation where there is space, where there is a chance to contemplate. And where it's this very simple opportunity just to, to know the way things are. This is the, for I find this kind of really amazing thing, that, that freedom is just so simple. <laughs> it's just like, just listening. We don't tend to trust that. You know, okay, I can't be more. And we get complicated. So trust and faith and awareness of change lead to very, very peaceful results. Very, very peaceful results. Whereas um, this kind of, uh, this fascination with the objects can, you know, aesthetically you can do things and you can, you can and we all try to do that, but there's this other way, there's this other way, no change. Alright, I'll leave that for your contemplation and open to any questions. Anyone have any comments on that or questions? Please. Um, thank you very much for um, your presence and your teaching, Hashem Viridal. I wanted to know um, under what conditions should one enter monkhood? You gotta be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's just, I, I got interested and I did it. Yeah. You just gotta, that's somewhat something you gotta figure out. It's, it's, it's not a life for everyone, and we make it pretty hard. And yeah, we have a real slow, slow process of, of watching people. And it's a, it, to me, it's the love of community and the love of, of the, uh, the aspiration to Nibbana. That's how we ordain. Um, but it doesn't suit everyone. Obviously, it suits me. Uh, so. In terms of how it works, people come to the monastery and they stay as lay people. And then uh, if they're interested, we say, great, go away and come back. <laughs> and then if they do come back, then we say, oh, okay, you try staying longer. And if they stay longer, we say, go away, come back. They come back again and they say, I want to stay, then okay, there's a bit of guts here. You know, it's not just a whim. 
Uh, and then we said, well, if you'd like to ordain, you could be a novice for a year in Nagarika. And that's a life of service. So for Westerners, that's a big step to actually serve a community in you know, hierarchy, a male community, and, and uh, just help around. So if a person then uh, likes to do that, and the community uh, thinks that they're appropriate and suitable, then the person can ask to take a brown robe, and there's another year of novitiate. And then if the person does that and they are still a suitable candidate, they can become a bhikkhu. And then they have to stay with the teacher for five years. So it ain't easy. It's like, you know, like a year before you even get, you, get in the door, and then it's seven years. It's a seven-year training. And then you're, it's kind of very much like the, the medieval craft system. The medieval craft system apprenticeship was, uh, I think, seven years before you became a journeyman. And then you're a journeyman, and then you become a master in your own right. So the way it works in monasticism is there's a long training in community uh, where you learn about yourself uh, and how to, how to live. In, and, and our life is one of both solitude and community. So we have uh, our own spaces, our own huts and cabins, and then we have communities. So it's very good. Like People who love solitude never want to come to meetings. And people who are gregarious never want to go back to their hut. So you kind of see yourself in both situations. Um, and then you'll be surprised at what comes up in those, in those formats. So hopefully after, after seven years, uh, a monk is quite independent. He understands the Dhamma, understands the Vinaya, and then he is free to seek out other teachers, go to other monasteries. He still needs the resources for that. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's not something you take, you take, you take lightly. Not not many of the of the monks I know, ones who came, you know, maybe in in Buddhism, in our monasticism, it isn't like we don't have lifetime vows. You know, that you come. You, a monk can leave any time. There's no, there's no lifetime vow. So these years of training, they're not. You're not incarcerated and chained down for seven years. <laughs> Bread and water. Um, but rather, it's a personal, personal choice that, that one makes. Uh, so it's a lot of surrender. There's a lot of surrender there. Having said that, it's been a beautiful life for me. I've got, I've got really interesting friends. Some of the old monks that I know are. They're really neat people, and very good lay friends from having been in community. So it's a very, it's a very rewarding life, um, and I've got, I probably get the best retirement system of anyone going in the planet. Thanks, <laughs> 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 taking care of me. But again, it's not. Theravada Buddhism portrays Buddhism very much through the monks' angle, because the monks were the recorders. But it's actually. It's a teaching for everyone, and, and monasticism, it's a, it's a vocation, you know, it's not, it's not, it doesn't work for everyone, so we, we don't accept everyone. I've refused a lot of people this year. I said, no, nah, I don't think, you're too old, or it's not going to work, or... So, but the, the most important thing is the aspiration to, whatever, whatever... Whatever religious aspiration you have, that you honor that this lifetime. Because I think that is really what, what is probably very important, that you have that aspect. So it's not just worldly. 
worldly things are, are good. I mean, they're important to be socially conscious and so on. But I get most joy from, from spiritual insight. That's where my deepest joy is. I get a lot of joy from breakfast, too. That's <laughs> 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 <Kind of> different. <laughs> we had bagels this morning. <laughs> yes? Um, the point where you become aware when you yeah. your thoughts stop and... and so I've been, you said that a while ago. I've been saying it for 30 yeah. years. <laughs> so I, but I, I, kind of, I guess I just sort of realized it, heard you, I guess, and I've been trying to do that right. for a while. And I notice when I, I kind of miss it. I kind of like, oh, I miss it. And then I get all flustered and, and I know I, and, or I, I catch it and then I, get anxious about it. Anyway, and I know I could say to myself, well, that's all in awareness and blah, blah, blah. Do you have any tips on how to just calmly Well, that, that see? very state of mind, which is looking for something, yeah, is the problem, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Right? Like someone just told me that they, they usually don't set their clock when they meditate. This time they had a meeting with me, and so they had a little time in the morning, so they set their clock for 30 minutes. This person usually meditates like two hours easy. And because they made the intention, I am someone who's going to sit for 30 minutes, they started to have anticipation. They created the anticipation through that setting of the clock for 30 minutes. That doesn't mean you, they won't set your clocks, but, but so you set up anticipation, that's what you have to know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So, so, so then you want to make conscious that very, you want to turn the mind on the mind and know that very mind state of looking for something. And that's very important. What, you know, because it's like, if you can get your mind not to be too busy, you'll just notice that even when the mind has not much thought in it, it's still looking for something. And you have to kind of pay attention to the very looking for something. It's not in thought anymore. It's not like uh, a lot of storyline. It's just this leaning. And you turn the mind on that. And then you're in the space again. So you're, any, you know, the very question you always ask, you know, any question you ask, the seeds of it is always where you have to put your awareness on. Yeah? So this, what you're asking is, is you have to look at the very anticipation as an object. Right? And, and just remind yourself that, because uh, it's not a matter of catching it, it's a matter of, <laughs> it's, it's hard to explain, yeah. isn't it? It just is. <laughs> so that's why I just do this simple stuff, you know, listen to sound. Like, just go back to bed. Yeah, you know, like, if... I had a... When I was in university, I was, I was not a good student, but there was one student who was really, really bright and diligent and, and interesting. Now, I should, I should look him up on Google. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> what is he doing? He, uh, this is an engineering, and he always got top marks. I said, how do you do it? He said, I just go back to first principles. I don't do formula. Because he understood... How you, you know, how you solve a problem, and he just had different parameters. Then he went back to first principles, and then he would go through, get the right answer, because he understood it. So first principles for me in Buddhism, listen to sound. Get yourself to that place of awakeness. Right? That's it. You're home. Right? And you can always do that. You can always do that. Whereas if you, if you start to complicate it with, I have to forget that moment, there's a self you again. So if you begin with something very simple, 
Oh, that's home ground, okay. And then recognize that. When you recognize something, you're putting the intentions in your mind for recognizing at a second time. So you, 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 you just listen and say, this is it. This is enlightenment. Big word. Okay, whatever, whatever you want to call it. This is, this is home. That's, that's all. That's all. This is important. And kind of, kind of get that recognition. That's all. And then that creates the intention to notice it in the same way. Again. So back to first principles. Back to first principles. And we get all complicated like that. Have a sandwich. <laughs> and put it all, you know, put, put away the idea of practice even. You know, when it gets that complex, just don't even think about practice. Go for a walk, go for a bike ride, and then just stop and then look at the river. And then just let sight come to you. Are you there? Are you there again? And then when thought gets so convoluted, it's good just to walk away, do something else. And then I would never meditate. <laughs> well, well, I'm not certain that. <laughs> I just to get reoriented. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to just put it all down. Because you, 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 you're, very, you're very diligent and you have a real deep aspiration for the spiritual life, which are really, really beautiful qualities. Now, how can you match that aspiration for uh, simplifying, I would say, uh, and trusting in the simplicity of just listen, so, so that your aspiration isn't too complicated by, by the thinking mind and the becoming mind? 